Head on down to the kids' class. Good morning. My name is Austin, and I'm on staff here at Mercy House. And uh, this week, we're going to be continuing our series through the chapter, uh, the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. So if you want to follow along, you've got Bibles underneath your seats, or you pull out your phone if you brought your own. Uh, I'd love for you to follow along with me as we open up God's Word. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 7, which says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So we see here both the, the faith of the leaders, but also their way of life. And this is what we're looking at this whole series through the chapter, uh, 13th chapter of Hebrews, is faith and practice. What is the faith that is informed by the gospel, and how does that play out in daily life? Well, how do we imitate the way of life and the faith of these leaders that the author of Hebrews is talking about, well, we do it by holding on to what they believed. What did they hold to as the thing that was most important to them? What was the purpose, the goal of their lives, the thing that gave their life meaning? Because whatever that goal or purpose is, that's going to shape the actions that we perform and the habits that those lead to. So those beliefs shape their faith. And so this is why we get down to verse 9, and the author of Hebrews warns us about teachings. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So this, this word for led away literally means to be carried away, to be sort of dragged along, carried away by, by strange and diverse teachings. Uh, but what kind of strange and diverse teachings are related to food, right? Like we don't Necessarily think about food as saving us uh, so much, but uh, that's not necessarily the case in, in history. In 1902, a German man named August Engelhardt sailed to the South Pacific to found a cult of sun-worshipping nudists who only ate coconuts. He was convinced that this all-natural lifestyle of, sorry, he's wearing a towel there, fortunately. <laughs> this all-natural lifestyle of sunbathing and coconuts would solve the whole human condition. It would bring humanity into this bright and, and better future. He actually published these beliefs in a manifesto called A Carefree Future, The New Gospel. He claimed the coconut was the philosopher's stone. It would cure, cure human mortality. And he actually attracted thousands of young, eager, eager followers. And what was his reasoning for all this? Well, according to NPR, he believed that since the coconut grew highest up in the tree, closest to God and closest to the sun, it was godlike. And since it had hair and looked kind of like a human head, he thought it came closest to being a man. And so, according to his rather crackpot theory, to be a cocovore, eater of coconuts, was to be a, a theophage, an eater of gods. And so, from 1902 to 1919, Engelhardt lived on this beautiful little island in the South Pacific, eating nothing but coconuts, believing he had found the panacea for all of humankind's woes. Except, as you might imagine, eating only coconuts is a terrible idea. At the end of his life, he was reduced to a mentally ill, rheumatic, severely malnourished sack of bones with ulcers over his legs. That's their wording, not mine. And all of this was by the age of 44. 
So, so much for immortality, right? But this is not an uncommon thing throughout history. For example, in the early church, one of the, the big doctrines that early church writers were actually writing against was Manichaean Gnosticism. And this was a cult that, that actually the great Augustine, one of the greatest minds in Western history, was a part of prior to his conversion to Christianity. And they actually believed that, that divinity had been trapped in human bodies, and so they were sort of a spark of divinity. And if they ate melons, they could free that divinity to go back up and become one with God. So they ate a lot of melons. Uh, even more recently, in the 1800s, there was this little pill called Blue Mass that was promised to cure every ailment you could think of. And what was in these, these blue pills? Mercury. Lots of mercury. This was the thing that doctors were prescribing for every illness. This was going to fix everything. Just take this blue pill once a day and, and all your aches and pains and everything would be gone. Abraham Lincoln was actually a subscriber of the Blue Mass supplement. And they attribute some of his erratic behavior and, and fits of rage and all these other neurological things he had at the end of his life to mercury poisoning because he was eating lots of mercury. Uh, in the 1920s even, uh, it was advertised these diet pills full of tapeworms. And this was a really easy way. You could eat anything you wanted and stay skinny and, and good looking if you just took this tapeworm pill. A few other fun little things. We've got asthma cigarettes. Uh, for the temporary relief of paroxysms of asthma, not sure what that means, uh, effectively treats asthma, hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, head colds, canker sores, and bronch bronchial irritations. Not recommended for children under six. So they had some restrictions. Uh, another one here, where, um, the next one, we've got uh, cocaine toothache, toothache drops. Instantaneous cure, only 15 cents. You've got some toothache, just you know, take some drops of cocaine, you'll feel way better. Works every time. And these are just a few of, of so many things like this. There's actually a, a really funny podcast called Sawbones, where they just, these, this doctor just looks at things like this throughout history. Uh, one of them is actually called trepanation. They drill a hole in your head. This is a thing people have practiced for as long as humans have been around, I guess. But there was a guy in the 1960s who believed that he could actually achieve enlightenment this way, that this was the next step for humanity to evolve was if they could, if you could increase the blood flow to the blood-brain barrier, you could actually go to this higher level of consciousness. So after he sawed a hole in his own head, they instituted him in an asylum. And now these seem really diverse and strange, right? Like these are some weird teachings and weird things that are gonna, gonna solve our problems. But what each of these things has uh, going for it is, is a promise of the good life. There's this vision of human flourishing that this thing is promising. It's gonna, it's gonna make your hay fever go away. It's gonna fix all your ailments. It's gonna make life better. And even today, we have all sorts of diets and supplements that are constantly promising to eliminate all of our aches and pains. They're gonna uh, smooth away all the wrinkles and they're gonna prevent cancer and, and they're gonna fix everything. If you just eat this right way or take this right thing. And these things are changing so often that it's hard to keep up with what the latest, latest fad is. And what these things are promising, and while they seem maybe harmless, is that they're actually packaging this alternative gospel. They're promising good news for the good life. This good life of, of longevity and vitality, that, that this is gonna make you live a few years longer and it's gonna be great, and this is gonna, this is gonna fix your life. The life that you always wanted. And 
The problem is we see these things so often on billboards and Facebook feeds and that they stop seeming so strange and varied and unusual. They're, they start to feel very familiar and normal and we stop questioning them. So much so that a lot of churches have actually started incorporating the gospel message to fit this. That if you, if you believe in Jesus, you can sign up for the discipleship benefits package. You'll get health, wealth, comfort, all the things you need. You just got to come to church every week and be a Christian, and God will make all your troubles go away. Doesn't that sound great, right? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't it okay to be, to be comfortable? Right? And we got these fans up here, you know, so we don't have to, to hear too much heat. And it's not that these things by themselves are bad in any way, but it's that they're offering a different vision of what it means to be human, of what it means to flourish, to have the good life. And what we see here in this passage in Hebrews is a different picture. The author of Hebrews says it is good, the thing that is good is for your heart to be strengthened. Good, we got, this is, this is the encouragement to come sit up front. You got the two fans up here. So he says, it's good for your heart to be strengthened. Now, sorry, runners, this is not cardiovascular, right? What, what he means by heart here is that the inner person, the core of who you are, all of your desires, your emotions, your will, your mind, all these things that make up you as a human being and as an individual, that's your heart, the thing that makes you fundamentally you. And the problem with our hearts is that they're weak. So this is what, what food tells us or what these other things tell us is that the problem is that our, our bodies are weak. And if we eat the right food and we take the right things, then, then we'll be better, we'll be stronger. But the Bible says that's not our fundamental problem. Our fundamental problem is that our hearts are weak. The core of who we are is corrupted by sin. And so our, our main problem is not obesity, but it's pride. It's selfishness. It's uh, envy. All of these different things are, are the things that are really corrupting who we are as humans and the things we really need to be saved from. In Colossians 2, Paul addresses this attempt to use, to use food to, to cure ourselves. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, which is sort of not eating or being very, very overly restrictive uh, with your body, uh, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from the whole body, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, sort of the, the ways of worshiping and living in the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that indulgence of the flesh, he's talking about, about sin. He's saying none of these things that you do to try to eat the right way and do all these things are ultimately going to fix your soul. Now, there are plenty of reasons to not eat certain things and to eat other things. I'm not saying that none of that matters. <laughs> Health is great. 
and, and eat well and source it well and, and care about those things. Exercise, go to the gym, it's great. But the longevity and vitality of our lives, these things are good, but if our hearts are dead, if the core of who we really are is dead, then these things mean nothing. How sad is it if we live to 100 and miss out on eternity? Rather, our hearts need to be strengthened, but they can't be strengthened by food. They need to be strengthened by grace. How do we have our hearts strengthened by grace? We cling to the true gospel. Not these teachings that are, that are changing all the time and offering us all these other ways of living, but the true gospel of grace. And we find this in scripture. And it offers us an alternative vision, alternative vision of human flourishing. The author of Hebrews talks about this, uh, this scripture, this revelation of the true gospel at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he says, we look at the prophets and we look at Jesus, and that tells us the unchanging, true gospel that is the answer, the cure for our heart problem, our heart disease. He reminds, Paul reminds this uh, to his disciple Timothy. He tells him, follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he's saying, you've been, you've been given the true gospel. You've been given the, the panacea, the answer to all of life's woes. Don't be swept away by all the, the promises of the world, but guard this truth. When we study scripture, we begin to become familiar with the true gospel. So much that we begin to recognize all these false narratives when we see them. They become obvious and plain to us because we know the truth. There's a classic example of this uh, illustration that people have used before, uh, but this idea of, of counterfeit money. Now, how would you think you'd learn to know which money is fake and which is not? Mitchell might be able to tell you about this now. Uh, but they don't show you all the fake options, right? Like, oh, well, here's this one, here's why it's not right, and here's this one, and here's why it's got this thing wrong with it. No, they have you study the real thing. They have you take it and, and hold it and study it and feel it and, and look at it. Because these, the fakes are changing constantly. They're strange, they're varied, they're, every day there's something new that someone's coming up with to attempt to make this fake money. But the real ones stay the same. And so instead, they, the banks teach their employees to handle the original so much that the fake becomes obvious. Uh, there was an interview done with a Canadian bank. Someone wanted to know, is this true? Is this really how this is done? And they said, yes, they teach their employees to, to touch, tilt, look at, and look through. And you can practice this if you have cash. Just look, you take it, you, you can feel it, right? It's not, it doesn't feel like paper, it's a little more like cloth. You can uh, tilt it and look at some of the different holographic images, right? They'll, they'll sort of splay out if they're on there. Uh, if you look at it, you'll start, you'll can see all the different things that are on there, the watermarks, things that need to be on there. And then you can hold it up and you can see, uh, you can see the watermarks through it of what's supposed to be there. And as you get used to doing that, 
all of a sudden you pick up a fake one, and you're like, oh, yeah, clearly that's not real. It doesn't feel right, it doesn't look right, it's missing this. And uh, all of the fakes become obvious. And this is what, we ha what happens when we look at the true gospel. When we read the word of God, and we immerse ourselves in it, we soak ourselves in it, we begin to become so familiar with the truth that the lies become obvious. They no longer start to tempt us and to carry us away because we can see them for what they are. One of the reasons, uh, I think, some, something I think will help us think well about this, there's a concept the ancients talked about a lot, was this idea of telos. Now, telos just means end or, or goal, purpose. And Aristotle talked about it this way. He said, what determines the thing's nature was what counted as its successful operation. The essential, uh, it's achieving what is good for it to achieve. And this is what every gospel message is giving us. It's saying, this is, this is the thing, that this is what success looks like. This is the goal, this is the purpose of your existence. The essential nature of things lay not in their cause or beginning, but at their end, their telos. What is the purpose for which we exist? What is the end goal which we are working towards? And all these other gospels give us a picture of that, right? Whether it's, hey, you can add five years to your life if you just eat this way and, and exercise this way. You can have this comfort, right? You don't have to worry about when the economy goes up and down because you've got enough money in your savings account. You, you can have this nice house and, and, you know, you've got the air conditioning so when it's 105 outside, you're not sweating all day. All these things that are being promised to us, saying this is what success looks like. This is what the good life looks like. This is the telos of your existence. But the true gospel tells us something different. And I think as Christians, we often talk a lot about what we're saved from, but we can neglect to talk about what we're saved for and what we're saved to. And see, so what we're saved for, what the end goal is, and what we're working towards is what's going to shape all the other things that we do and the way that we live. What you believe is the end of your life, the end purpose and goal is going to determine what you do and what you prioritize. So you get really annoying questions from people, maybe a job interview or friends and family, right? What do you, where do you see yourself in five years? Right? I, I hate that question. So <laughs> I don't know. What, do I, what am I supposed to be doing in five years? But what this, what this is asking us to do, right, is to imagine the ideal future. If everything worked out just the way you wanted it to, be, to where, where would you be? And if you buy into our culture's vision of human flourishing, which places health and happiness and all these things as the highest goods, then you're only going to do things and prioritize things in your life to achieve that end. And if that is the case, then you're only going to read your Bible when it makes you feel better. Or when you're having a rough day and things are going well, then you're going to pray because it might make the bad things go away. It's going to help you achieve this other end, but at that case, it's only this instrumental good. And as soon as life starts getting comfortable again and things are going well, and I don't, well, I don't need to read my Bible today. I've got other things going on. Or we measure, in our society, we often measure success and flourishing as this, this weird twisted combination of endless productivity, right? How much can you achieve mixed with this self-centered leisure, right? Like how much can you sit around and, and do nothing or only things that make you happy? 
And somehow we're supposed to be doing both of those all the time, like accomplish as much as you can, as quickly as you can, so you can spend the rest of your life on the golf course, right? Like this weird thing, we're trying to do both. And in the midst of that, reading the Bible is not going to be much of a priority. It's not going to be very productive towards getting you that house you always wanted or that retirement plan. It's not going to be very productive towards those grades when you're <laughs> needing to be studying and getting all these things done. It's going to be a distraction. It's going to be a waste of time. But Hebrews tells us that the highest good is not our physical vitality or material comfort, but it's a strong heart. And what is a strong heart? A strong heart is a heart that has been transformed by the gospel to look like Christ. A heart that's overflowing its truth, goodness, and beauty. And only grace can make that type of heart. Only grace can actually transform you from the inside out so that you look like Christ. And if that is the highest good and the highest goal, then our lives are going to look very differently in the way we prioritize the things that are important to us. Paul gives us a picture of this, this telos, this goal of the Christian and the church in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this uh, in verse 11. He says, And he, talking about Christ, gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a high bar. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul here gives us, saying this is the end, the purpose of your existence, is to be built up into Christ together. That's why you exist. That's why you're here. That's why you were saved from sin, was so that you could be saved for Christ. And so as you're thinking about those sort of questions, where, where do I see myself in five years or ten years? What is the story going on in your mind? What is the, the, the image, the picture that you see? Is it that, that dream job or maybe that, that nice, perfect house that you've always wanted or having enough income to protect you from the, the unpredictable circumstances of life? Or is it, I really want to be less selfish. I really want to be a better friend. I want, to be, I want to be more generous and kind. I want to invest in people and the lives of others so that they can know what it's like to walk with Christ. That's what I want my life to look like in five years. No matter the cost. Because if, if that's your, your telos, your goal, is to walk with Christ and to look like Christ to the world, then spending a little bit of time in your Bible is not going to be so hard. That doesn't mean well, there won't be good days and bad days. But it's going to be the thing that actually gets you 
to that goal. And that's why keeping in mind what our goal is, what, our, what this, this end of our lives is, is so important. Because it's going to affect how we set up our lives around the grace of Christ. I had a meeting uh, with a, a spiritual director that I meet with for school. Someone I sit down with, and we pray together. And we were meeting, and, and he kept asking me this question, what do you want? And it was terrible. <laughs> I just sat there in silence for like 10 minutes. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Like, what do you want most? Like, what is the thing that drives your heart? The deepest longing of your soul, what do you want? And the first things that were coming to mind were, well, I really want to get good grades because that feels like success to me and that seems like, that seems really good. Uh, I want that to lead to a good job that's going to be, be meaningful and fulfilling and it's going to make a difference in the world. Uh, I want to get a, a comfortable enough salary. It doesn't be too much, but, you know, enough that, you know, we, we can have a little savings and maybe, you know, have a car that isn't 15 years old and some things like that. Uh, and as I started to, to sort some of these things out and, and set one, one, each one aside, I'm like, is that, do I really want that? Right? Like, is that really the goal? Should I really want that? And as sort of set each of these, and asking the question, like, if I didn't get that, would I still be happy? Would everything be, like, would my life fall apart if I didn't get that thing? I slowly set each of those things aside and found myself just with Jesus. <laughs> I was like, this is the only thing I know that if I have Jesus, my life won't fall apart. Because it's the only thing I ultimately need. And I found myself in this really broken place realizing, like, that's, that wasn't, that's not what I'm chasing. But it's the thing that I need most of all. I want Jesus. And I realized that, that getting Jesus would require a lot less time being productive. It would require a lot more time just sitting and being still with God. Totally changing the way I prioritize my time and relationships and energy and money. And because all of the things that I was doing weren't going to get me to Jesus. They were going to get me to, to something else. So if our goal is Christ and our actions and habits begin to change, to surround ourselves around his grace so that our hearts are strengthened again and again and again because they're so weak. And even when we have received that grace and he's begun transforming us, we so often go right back to those narratives that we breathe in every day. All day, we're taking in alternative visions of the good life. And so if we want Jesus, then reading the Bible becomes absolutely essential for us to constantly be reminded of the true gospel. And it offers us a very different vision of human life. This Greek word for, for devoted here, it talks about those who, who are devoted to this way of food, uh, is, means to, to walk in, to walk around. Right? These people walk, saying walking around in these other teachings. And so my question for you today is what are you walking around in? Because whatever you're walking around in is going to show you what your goal is, what you're moving towards, and whether it is God or not. One thing I would encourage you to do, really simple, this week is just to read through Hebrews. Right? We're going through Hebrews 13, just one chapter, going in real deep. But take some time and just go through the whole book. You know, I, I sat down as I was preparing for this sermon. I confess I hadn't read through all of Hebrews. 
over the last few months. And so I just put on the Bible app and hit play and just listened to it. It took, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes or something. And it was incredible. It was so life-giving. Like I just, afterwards, I just felt so refreshed. And I felt like my whole perspective was shifted as I was reminded, like, yeah, it's all about what Jesus has accomplished. All these things I'm trying to do to, to work hard and feel like I'm being successful in, in school or ministry or as a father or a husband, like, that's never going to be enough. But Jesus is the good high priest. Jesus is the, the founder and establisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who has accomplished it once and for all at the cross. And so I found my soul so refreshed and alive just from 40 minutes of sitting and listening to some guy read through Hebrews. So I encourage you this week, just something that simple, is just to soak and immerse yourself in God's word. Because all these teachings are constantly being fed into us. Right? The mall, the movies, the TV, all, all these things. And again, they're not in and of themselves bad things. But if we don't recognize they're offering us a different vision of what it means to be human and what our purpose and existence is for, we're going to get swept away by those things. We need to cling to the gospel. And we do that by immersing ourselves in the word of God every day, coming back to the truth. Another way that we do this every single week is by coming up and taking the bread and the cup. And it might seem repetitive, right, that we, we do this every single week over and over and over again. But that's everything we do in life, right? And every, all of those repetitive things you're doing every day, waking up and getting up and going to work and, and doing these things are all shaping and forming you towards something, towards some narrative of what it means to be you. And this tells us a different story of what it means to flourish. When the greatest human to ever walk the earth, God himself became flesh. He didn't come as a super successful businessman or, or whatever, as a king, as he could have done any of these things, right? He's king of the universe. And he comes and is born to some relatively poor folk, works as a carpenter, and wanders around teaching people from the scriptures, about the gospel, saying that he alone was the only way. But what does his successful ministry look like? Well, most of his people abandoned him. Even at the very end, he is betrayed by some of his closest followers and abandoned as he goes to the cross. Because for him, the, the greatest goal and purpose of his life on earth, his time on earth, was to die for sinners like you and me. And that was what success and flourishing looked like. For God himself become man. So what are we pursuing as our highest goal and good of flourishing? Jesus sitting around to a meal with his disciples. He, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And the same way he took the cup. He said, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for the forgiveness of many. He lived to be maybe thir 33 years old or so before giving his life on the cross, accomplishing 
the greatest thing any human could ever accomplish by laying down his life for the rest of humanity. That's what the good life looks like. And so as we come up each week and we receive the bread and, and the cup as a reminder, as a symbol of the grace that has been given to us, may our hearts be strengthened so that we can live and grow up by grace into Christ, who is our head. So this morning, I want to invite you up to receive this, to cling to the truth, this true gospel. If you've never been here with us before and done this, what we're going to do is uh, those on this side are going to line up here, receive the bread, take the cup, and return back in, file into your seats there. Same thing on this side. During this time, there'll be some people at the back who would love to pray with you. I'll be back there. I'd love to pray with you or be prayed for. And if you're here this morning and you've never received that grace, you're thinking about what the end goal and purpose of your life is, and it's not Christ, and you, maybe you don't know what it is, I would invite you this morning to consider him. To receive, open your life up and receive his grace. Because it's the only thing that can take your dead heart and make it alive. Not life that's 80 years, 90 years, 100 years on, on this earth, but eternity with him. Real flourishing, real life. But if you're not there this morning, I would encourage you right now and just ask you to stay at your seats and to think about this. I'd love to talk to you more afterwards if you have questions or talk to somebody else you know about what it's like to live strengthened by that grace. So I'm going to invite uh, communion service up, I'm going to pray, and we're going to do this together. Lord, you are so good. You have embodied for us and shown us what the good life looks like by accomplishing the only means possible by which we could achieve it, which is your grace. Once and for all, you accomplished salvation for us so that we could live forever with you in intimacy in union with you our king our creator so lord i pray this morning that we would be uh just encouraged that our hearts would be strengthened as we have soaked ourselves in your word as we take the bread and the cup god that who the very core of who we are would be revived this morning to flourish in, in life with you even if it looks so different from the world has to offer. And so we give all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.